Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I am Joe McCormick, and it is October on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, which means the uncanny pods continue. And today we're back with part two in a series we started on Tuesday about the monster cats of Japanese legend, the cat yokai. So a brief recap of what we talked about last time. We covered a bit about the general role of cats in Japanese history and Japanese culture. And then we discussed a couple of famous cat yokai, altered cats in monster form, including the Nekomata, which may be a sort of giant monster cat or general large predator of the mountain forests, or maybe a cat that reaches a certain age, like a domestic house cat that reaches a certain age, maybe the age of 100, and then transforms into a monster. We also talked about the Bakeneko, a sort of amoral, shape-shifting cat that may play pranks, may drink blood, may exact deadly revenge, etc. Does that about cover it, Rob? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And an important thing to keep in mind, this is something we were talking about off mic before we came in here, is that there's a certain amount of overlap between these different classifications. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, more generally, as we've often discussed with folklore and legends and mythology and even religion, uh, that there's not often like a strong uh, canonizing, codifying force that is coming in and saying like, okay, this is this creature and this is this other creature. Mm -hmm. No, things shift over time. Ideas merge, ideas influence one another. And uh, I mean, really, if you want to look outside of folklore and mythology and legend to find examples of this, I mean, look no further than say like comic book characters where, like a character like Lex Luthor or the Riddler 
you know, have changed multiple times over the years to reflect different ideas in popular culture with like Lex Luthor becoming less of a mad scientist uh, in a mecha suit and becoming like a corporate businessman and so forth. The Riddler suddenly is the Zodiac killer in, in recent <laughs> films, you know, that sort of thing. Uh-huh. I think that's a great comparison. But even in that case, at least the things you're talking about are fixed media documents like, you know, comic books and films, which continue to exist in a fixed form. When something is just sort of oral legend and part of a culture, there is almost a limitless kind of uh, free flow of the boundaries of the concept. Right, right. There's no like central publication that is to some extent controlling the form. And you can argue just how much even something like The Riddler is controlled by, say, DC Comics, because mm-hmm. ultimately you have fan fiction, fan art, etc. Uh, but yeah, outside of, uh, of that, you know, we're dealing with, with situations where things are just growing organically, often in oral storytelling traditions, and then it gets influenced by various um, artistic renditions and so forth. So today we're going to be talking about some more Japanese stories of uh, magical cats, not all monster cats, but some of them are monster cats. Uh, But before we get into that, I wanted to look at something more broadly about the perception of cats as powerful beings. So in multiple sources I was reading for the series there would be little comments and asides that were variations on the perception that cats just seem to have some kind of obscure hidden power, that something about the nature of the cat suggests there's more than meets the eye. And I find myself intuitively very much in agreement with that. But I I would back up and say, even before you get to the assumption about magical powers— I think there is just something about a cat that suggests power of some sort. Like, despite the fact that cats are internet famous for being, you know, goofy goobers, cute goofy goobers, uh, no doubt they often are, just as often when, especially when I'm in the physical presence of a cat, I often feel that a house cat is commanding a strange, mysterious power and respect. And I was talking to my wife, Rachel, about this, uh, and she said basically she had the same feeling. She said when in the presence of a cat, it's it's this kind of a creature that's holding something over you. Specifically, in her case, she talked about the feeling of the need to impress a cat. Like this is an animal that is passing judgment on you and you are failing And there might be some kind of bad consequence to the fact that you are not standing up in the eyes of the cat. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, when you go over to a friend's house and they have a dog, the dog may initially bark at you. But, you know, as as is often the case in my experience, then the owner will say, no, 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 um, Hugo or whatever the dog's name is. This person is fine. This person's fine. And eventually, in my experience, the dog tends to listen to this and is like, "Okay, all right, he's fine. The cat, you know, the best you can do when, a, when someone comes over is say, like, look, I have nothing to do with how this cat is going to receive you. I can give you advice. I can tell you what not to do. But ultimately, it's out of my hands. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You know, I'm not the boss here in a way. Yeah. Uh, so I can sense why people in various cultures throughout history might start to wonder if the domestic cat is brimming with bloodthirsty sorcery. And all it would take is that same feeling I have, that intuitive sense that the cat is powerful for some reason, but paired with the observation that that sense of power is incongruous with the cat's actual physical size and strength. Like, you know, that 
that sense of power cannot be justified through what a cat can literally actually do. So the mind fills with magic. And I will add that, uh, of course, the, the comparison to dogs is unavoidable. I love dogs. I am more of a dog person than a cat person. And I would not say this about dogs at all. This seems totally unique to cats. Uh, dogs do not seem to have hidden power or magic in this way. Yeah, yeah. As a, as a cat person, I find that when I encounter a new dog, it's like uh, things often push to one extreme or another. You know, a dog is either suspicious or hostile towards you, or they are just instantly already your friend and want mm. to, you know, get all up in your business and, and, and see if you have treats and so forth. Um, and of course, um, you know, the, on the threat end of the spectrum, obviously, as in my first example, a lot of times it's like that initial barking at a stranger, but then they're like, oh, okay, they're fine. But with the cat, there's often there often seems to be, and again, this is gener this is generality. Then there are going to be individual exceptions with the cats, as there are with the dogs. But they seem to occupy this middle ground, you know, where it's like a no friends, no enemies approach to relationships. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's good. But anyway, so this got me wondering, like, why is it that cats seem powerful in this way? I don't know if they seem this way to everyone, but I I think at least a lot of people must share this feeling I have. And this turned out to be a difficult question, question to answer in a way that felt really solid and empirically justified. I don't think I have a great answer to this question, but I've turned up a few possible interesting ideas. So the first place I looked to try to get some empirically justified threads on this is I was wondering, well, what are the behavioral markers of power in humans that we might just be sort of mapping on to the behavior of cats? And this is great because, you know, the whatever government agencies or whatever are tracking my Internet behavior must now think I'm about to start a second career as one of those psychopath dating advice coaches because I'm here searching for studies on what makes humans seem powerful. How do humans signal <laughs> dominance and high status? Uh, so, TikTok masculinity priesthood, here I come. I imagine there's a lot out there that equates dog ownership with strength and cat ownership with sensitivity. Uh, these are, of course, both ridiculous stereotypes, but you do see this sort of thing reflected. Like, look at this guy. He's got a, he's got a big dog. Must be, must be a really powerful fellow. Look, this, this, this creature is clearly physically powerful, and it just works for him. You know, it's subservient <laughs> to him. Whereas He's the, the boss. Yeah. yeah, whereas the cat ownership is, you know, is often interpreted uh, in, in the opposite direction. I guess one of the seasonally appropriate examples is, of course, when, when people realized, or I mean, I think this was always kind of out in the open, but when people realized that, uh, that uh, metal musician Glenn Danzig uh, is a cat person and has cats and buys <laughs> cat litter, right? People had a lot of fun with that concept because he pushes this hyper-masculine... Um, uh, identity out there. Right. And so it, it just dealing with like those really like outrageous, uh, gender stereotypes, it was like, it seemed counterintuitive that this individual would have a cat. Um, but then again, when you get into all the spooky stuff, right, it seems perfectly logical that he would have multiple black cats. I feel like I could have told you Danzig was a cat person. I don't know how I knew, but I knew. Yeah, I think there are old old photos of them with with uh, with cats long before the the kitty litter shopping uh, photo went viral. But anyway, what did I come up with here? Okay, I, th I think about two ideas that are potentially interesting, and one that was kind of a a, a failed uh, rabbit trail. We'll we'll do the failed one first. This idea okay. is about eye contact. I have the impression that something about the way a cat looks at you can feel intimidating and that there's something about the gaze of a cat that uh, 
that has to do with this feeling of power that I I impute to them. And I wondered if this had something to do with our instincts about eye contact. Uh, I think it's absolutely clear that eye contact is one of the most potent and complicated elements of human body language. How much you do or don't connect with somebody's gaze, who engages and breaks off eye contact and when they do it. Uh, These gestures that we make with our eyes are interpreted as containing lots of socially relevant information. And if you doubt this, just just like try to have a conversation with somebody, but don't do what feels natural with eye contact, like like force yourself to maintain eye contact longer than you naturally would or something. It will, I, I guarantee you, immediately be- become extremely uncomfortable and you will both get freaked out. For whatever reason, humans just read a lot into how they manage eye contact with each other. There are a bunch of studies about this, and while there might be a lot of different kinds of information encoded in patterns of eye contact, it's clear that one of the important types of social information that we interpret in patterns of eye contact has to do with power, status, and dominance. Uh, For example, there are studies showing that, at least in some human-on-human scenarios, people perceived to be powerful or in leadership roles are more likely to maintain eye contact once it is initiated. So you meet the powerful person's gaze, and the powerful person will stare you down. Uh, Conversely, people who are perceived in social interactions as subservient or less powerful are more likely to break off eye contact and avert their gaze from that of of a person they perceive as more powerful or higher status than them. So I was thinking about this and I was thinking, what this does feel like it squares with experiences I've had with cats where they will just like stare into my eyes until I feel uncomfortable and feel like I have to look away. Uh, and this does appear to be a true dynamic for humans, but I couldn't really connect this to any empirical evidence that that cats are especially prone to this, that cats are uh, more likely than any other animal to like hit you with a laser beam of unbroken eye contact. <laughs> Uh, Like I said, I feel like I've had this experience before, but I don't think it's generally true of cats. In fact, a lot of like veterinary sources I was reading claim exactly the opposite. They say that cats tend to find sustained eye contact threatening and stressful and that you should not stare right into their eyes because it will bother them. The reasoning being that that cats only uh, hold eye contact with each other when they are preparing to fight, which would mirror the idea that eye contact has something to do with sort of like a you know, uh, dominance and competition in mammals. So if vets and other experts say that cats generally avoid prolonged eye contact with humans, that's sort of the opposite of what I was wondering about. So I don't know, maybe there's something I'm missing, but I I think my intuition about cats was just wrong in this case. Hmm. Yeah, I've heard that cats favor a narrowing of the eyes and a head nod, though I've never investigated it to see if there's anything substantial backing it up. But in my limited experience it kind of sort of seems to work you know like if i if i find myself staring at my cat sometimes i'll do that and you know it seems like we have a cool moment but um (laughs) in general though i would say in my experience is all very subjective uh, obviously but cats have very captivating eyes they have very large eyes they're the eyes of a predator uh you know an obligate predator here 
They also are, are eyes that are finely tuned for work in low-light environments. Uh, they will appear to gleam, you know, in, in low-light environments, which uh, often uh, has an impact on various supernatural interpretations, you know, eyes gleaming in the night, glowing in the night, and so forth. Uh, whereas with dogs, I don't know, sometimes I encounter dogs and it's like their eyes feel like they're completely dark, you know, like they're like a doll's eyes, but not in like a threatening uh, Jaws fashion, but in a like, this is a stuffed animal fashion. Like there's oh. no agency here. This this animal's just just dumb as all get out. You oh, know? <laughs> I don't um, feel that about dogs, but not, I do. Not all dogs, <laughs> just some dogs I've encountered, mm -hmm. their eyes feel very dark and like I don't read them as well mm. whereas cat eyes are are if they're if they're wide open certainly they're very intense well i think with some dogs you don't really get to see much other than than the pupil you know like the, you're not seeing a lot of the whites of a dog's eye usually which is something we use to interpret uh the theory of mind in other humans because like you know when we're trying to understand what other humans are thinking we look at where they're looking with their eyes mm -hmm. and that in, that necessarily involves being able to see the relative proportion of the whites of the eyes on you know like so we look at where their pupils are pointed uh with a dog yeah a lot of times like the the darker part of the eyeball like fills up most of what you can see yeah and the theory of mind of course is central to all of this uh, anybody who's who's familiar with animals will tell you that depending on the animal it may not be the eyes that are the prime indicator of, of mood and so forth i mean ears are especially important in a number of animals like what are their ears doing how are their ears positioned and so forth anyway okay so i think my thing about eye contact that's uh, not really going anywhere but a couple of other ideas i think might be onto something one is about elevation it seems to me that cats often seek to occupy high places in the room, on top of shelves and tall furniture, in lofted areas looking down on others. And unlike dogs, cats are climbers. They can actually get up to the high places. So I think often, even if a dog wanted to be up on top of the shelf, it probably can't get there, but a cat can. Uh, once again, I didn't know if this was a real trend with cats or just my personal idiosyncratic experience. Well, I looked it up to see if there are any studies on this, and there are. So I was reading in a book called The Domestic Cat, The Biology of Its Behavior from Cambridge University Press, 2000, edited by Turner and uh, Bateson. And uh, they're summarizing some research on this, and they say, quote, Smith et al., 1994, examined the behavior of cats in shelters with specific reference to their spatial distribution and object preferences. The cats used structures more often than the floor of their pens, and high structures, which provided vantage points, were used more frequently than low ones. Other studies have confirmed that cats prefer high shelves and enclosed areas. So this is not just my gut feeling. Researchers have investigated this and they found that, yes, cats do on average actually prefer to get up high and look down on everyone else. Now, pair that with uh, the fact that I think is totally clear that humans frequently use physical elevation to signal power. Think of the elevation of the king or the queen's throne over the throne room, the elevation of the judge's bench over the courtroom, the elevation of the preacher's pulpit, etc., uh, it, it seems like a common cross-cultural reality that when we want to signal that a person is powerful and they must be respected and even feared, we put them up on an elevated piece of furniture. 
So related to this cultural convention, which in turn might proceed from some uh, biological realities, we regard the entity up in a high place looking down on us as a being with power over us. Cats, on average, do selectively seek out elevated perches and high vantage points. So I guess that's one possible contributing factor to our perceptions of the strange power of a cat. Uh, and by the way, I was thinking—I I can't think of any other common domestic animal that is able to do this. Like, you know, dogs and all the common farm animals and so forth don't climb up on shelves to peer down at us. Uh, the only other one I was thinking of was maybe like the goat, which does mm. like to get up on top of the the roofs of the pens and so forth. Yeah, I was about to, to ask you if you had forgotten our friend the goat, because the, <laughs> the goat seems like the most striking example of, of animals that like you go out and you'll see you'll, you'll see goats in a field and if they have access to a hay, hay bale or some other elevated structure. You'll often find multiple goats enjoying that heightened perspective, um, whereas cats, I, I don't know, you know, I, I don't doubt the, the research here, but I, you'll find cats enjoying elevated positions, but also shelving and other locations that are maybe less high, that are maybe picked out more because they are enclosed, you know, they're, they're boxy, they're like little caves. Uh, likewise, I mean, you'll, you'll find cats sleeping on shoes and, and so forth at ground level. So um, I don't know, it, it, it seems less pronounced in cats than with goats, for sure. Goats would seem to be the, the superstars uh, here when it comes to elevated positions. Um, I think the, yeah, we do often put out, uh, like little pedestals and throne like structures for them to use, even, and of course, climbing towers and so forth. So we do facilitate, uh, their, their, uh, you know, their, their desire to have some sort of an elevated position and, and also, you know, that'll end up looking like we have provided a special place for them, a throne for them to rule over the household. Uh, though at the same time, as we've discussed in the show before, they'll also favor, say, uh, a discarded IKEA instruction manual that's left on a bed. Oh yeah. They'll 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 lay in an empty box. Um, so it's I don't know. I feel like they 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 do what they want. You know, we, we you can't you can't entirely. Um, uh, expect them to just go to the highest place. They're going to also find a comfy place. And on that, on that count, I would also add that one of the things about cats that may make them seem more powerful is the way they will recline in some, some uh, circumstances, especially if they're, say, on a couch uh, where they have something to lean their bodies back against. They'll sometimes have this body position that makes them look like a reclining bipedal humanoid. Um, and, uh, you know, their belly will perhaps be a little, uh, exaggerated since they may be an indoor cat that eats plenty. And this will sort of add to this feeling of a rotund ruler on their mm. throne. Jabba the cat. Yeah. But at the very least, uh, to, to your point, yes, cats will take advantage of various, uh, surface levels on which to rest and to, uh, uh, you know, view their domain. And a lot of times that will put them at a, at, certainly at a, at a, uh, at a higher vantage point, perhaps one that is more on the level with human beings as opposed to just being on the floor. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. 
Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. All right, another idea I had about cats and the perception of power. What if cats seem powerful because they are non-compliant or non-conforming? There are multiple studies on this dynamic in humans. Uh, just to refer to one that seems to be cited a lot, there is a study by Sylvia Beleza, Francesca Gino, and Anat Keenan called The Red Sneakers Effect, Inferring Status and Competence from Signals of Non-Conformity. This is from the Journal of Consumer Research from 2014. Uh, what seems to have incited this research is just some anecdotal observations that run counter to the conventional wisdom that if you want to be respected, you need to dress sharp. You know, I've heard variations on this my whole life. Dress for the job you want, not the job you have. And th they don't actually include, like, in that statement, what you're supposed to wear, but the unspoken assumption is that this means dress up, not dress down. You know, where in my case, the uh, this is interpreted as wear a tie, shine your yeah. shoes, etc. Mm -hmm. 
But the authors here point out that counter to this conventional wisdom, in certain sectors of business and culture, they cite observations in Silicon Valley, there seems to be a principle operating in exactly the opposite direction. People in these contexts seem to try to signal their power, competence, and high status by dressing down relative to their peers. So, like, you know the CEO because they will not tuck their shirt in. They're showing up at the board meeting in flip-flops. So that's just an anecdotal observation. But the authors here wanted to put together experiments to investigate empirically whether in some contexts non-conforming behaviors or non-compliance with social expectations Uh, whether, whether that does on average confer the appearance of power, competence, and high status. And generally in their experiments, which involve different kinds of, uh, you know, like staged encounters you might imagine in a university or business setting or whatever, uh, they did indeed find that sometimes noncompliance and nonconformity are interpreted by others as signs of power. And uh, they, they compare nonconformity and noncompliance with social expectations to a form of conspicuous consumption. Uh, Conspicuous consumption is a classic uh, concept where people try to show off their high status by showing off that they can afford luxury goods. So, you know, having like expensive jewelry on or wearing, you know, something that is impractically expensive, uh, an expensive car or something like that to, to like make people think that you are powerful and important. In their discussion section, the authors write, quote, We demonstrate that nonconforming behavior as a costly and visible signal can operate similarly to conspicuous consumption and, compared to conforming behavior, lead to inferences of enhanced status and competence in the eyes of others. Across a series of lab and field studies, we explore observers' reactions to a variety of nonconforming behaviors in different settings and find that observers confer higher status and competence to nonconforming individuals compared to conforming ones. At a process level, our investigation reveals that the positive inferences from signals of nonconformity are driven by perceived autonomy and moderated by observers' need for uniqueness. So the theory here seems to be that people interpret nonconformity as an honest display of autonomy. Somebody who is not complying with social expectations is sort of conveying, I will be fine without your approval. I don't need it, which ironically, in some cases, makes some people seem more competent, more powerful and more worthy of respect. So what are the boundaries of this effect? Because it obviously does not apply in every scenario. The authors in this paper, across their multiple studies, think that, uh, well, they say they find that it uh, this effect only appears when the observer is familiar with the environment and social expectations within it. So, you know, uh, when there are, quote, established norms of formal conduct in the given context and when the observer knows what they are. So, like, there have to be implied social rules in a place and the observer has to know what they are. They also find that the perception of status and competence associated with nonconformity only appears if the the observer believes that the person in question, the nonconforming person, is violating the norms on purpose. If it seems like they're simply not aware that they're dressing or speaking inappropriately, that doesn't confer any sense of power. The power comes from willful flaunting of social expectations. So how does this connect to cats? Obviously, cats don't dress themselves or use language, so it wouldn't make sense to talk about them 
intentionally flaunting expected dress codes or or ways of speaking. But I think basically anybody would have to agree that cats exude an air of non-compliance and non-conformity, especially when contrasted with other domestic animals like the dog. The dog, of course, you know, highly social and usually quite eager to please. The dog will put on a tie for you if it can, by God. But there is something about the way that, like, if you try to train a cat, I, I mean, it's it's not true that you can't train a cat. Sometimes people do do it, but it is notoriously difficult. And often you know, when people try it on their own, the cat just ignores you. Often not just ignoring you, but like staring right in your face while it ignores what you want it to do. And I think that does maybe convey a sense of willful flaunting of social expectations that could map on to these intuitions we have about human behavior, that when somebody is just like, no, I'm just not going to comply with with the social norms, that makes them seem like, oh, wow, this is a powerful person and I, I have I, maybe I should respect them. <laughs> Well, it is true that cats are quite ungovernable. Uh, they're notoriously so. Uh, it's also one of their their charms too, uh, but one of the frustrations of, of keeping them as well. Uh, there's a sticker design out there. I don't know. I get served ads for it all the time on like Instagram. I guess because I look at cat videos, and it's uh, like a cartoon cat with with two middle fingers up, and it says, "You can't stop me," which uh, <laughs> I love because it does perfectly capture the the spirit of the cat. They will do what they want. And, uh, yeah, like, uh, I imagine it's different. Like if a dog say, uh, were to poop on your bed, um, you know, this would, what would that be like, Joe? What is a dog owner? What, what, how does that go down? You get the sense that when a dog does, I mean, all dogs are different, of course. So we're speaking in generalizations, but I think on average, Dog owners would probably say that a dog can be made to feel ashamed about like that. You show the dog that they pooped on the bed. There's a sense that like the dog couldn't help it. It just got caught up in the moment or it really needed to go and it pooped on the bed. And then it looks at the poop and it's like, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> a cat, you don't get that at all. That's right. With with a cat, the first part may still obviously be true. The cat could, various circumstances, just made it to where the cat ended up leaving its poop on the bed. But there is this feeling that the cat is saying, actually, this is where my poop goes now. This is just how it is. I have made this decision. Um, and, what you what know, are you going to do about it? I don't yeah, need your approval. Yeah, you don't like it there. Move it. You're the one who handles my poop for me. But <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you encounter this all the time with cats. Like you, you attempt to get them a new litter that will be better for them and better for the whole household. And they reject it. Or you get them a comfy new bed, but instead they're going to go sleep on the instructions for putting together the fancy cat bed that you just bought. Yeah. You know, they, they're going to do what they want. Um, they're not necessarily, they may do what you want in time, but they're not going to do it on your schedule. Uh, they're, they, they have their own agenda in place. So to summarize, I, I don't think I have a comprehensive theory about why cats seem powerful, but I think we, we got a few interesting ideas there. I think the the non-compliance and non-conformity thing may be a big part of it. I think the elevation might possibly be a part of it. Uh, I don't think the, the eye contact thing really goes anywhere, but I'd be interested what listeners think, especially if you have, uh, I don't know, if you're like a vet, you work with cats or anything, or even if, you, you know, you just got a lot of cats and you want to tell us about them. <laughs> yeah, like, wh where do you think this sense that cats have a hidden power comes from? I think an another area that comes to mind is this sort of 
idea that there is a vanity, like in like a, a, a kingly or queenly vanity to the cat. Um, and I, I was thinking about this specifically last night because um, my son and I are, are I'm slowly reading Watership down to him mm. when, we, when we still do some story time. He does lots of reading on his own, but I was like, Watership, if you're all into all these animal books, let's do Watership down. And uh, we were just reading a part in this in which the rabbits encounter a cat. Uh, a cat in Watership Down is a deadly allele and one of the thousand enemies of uh, of the rabbit uh, people. But in, in this encounter, they managed to outrun the cat. And one of the rabbits comments that the, that the cats, quote, hate to look foolish. And hmm. this matches up with a lot of the things that one sees in cat behavior. They will often seemingly walk off stumbles and mistakes with a kind of nonchalant, that didn't happen vibe. This is, of course, all... <laughs> theory of mind and personification on our part, uh, but that's how we often end up interpreting it. So the cat may seem prideful and powerful in a way, you know, kind of like eager to cover up a stumble it made when, of course, in reality, the cat is just doing some mix of just recovering from whatever they did wrong and moving on or conserving energy instead of wasting, you know, time focusing on it. It's also uh, coming back a little bit to the uh, the, the subjects uh, that we had discussed in the last episode, um, this idea of cats catching on early in Japan with uh, with royalty, with nobility, mm. and uh, you, you have this 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 clear mental picture of a Japanese emperor, someone who is in a position where uh, I'm you know I'm, I'm imagining there's a lot of um, a lot of yes men surrounding them. There's a you know mm-hmm. a lot of power. There's a lot of uh, things uh, being done in such a way as to please the emperor. And then into their life strolls a cat, which uh, which you know is is adorable <laughs> and interesting, but also is not going to do what an emperor wants a cat to do. Like again, they are ungovernable uh, to the last of them, to a fault even. Uh, so uh, I, I think it's it's interesting to imagine that scenario and being part of there. You know, it's almost like they ha- occupy would have occupied like this jester's place uh, in the presence of the emperor. Like here is here is a creature that will not do whatever I want, and in a way, there's something liberating about that. I think that's a really good comparison. Yeah, like the power of the jester, like the 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 one who can criticize the king because they're a goober. Yeah. All right. Now, coming back a bit to Japanese lore and legend and tradition concerning cats, um, I want to get into a few other ideas here. I want to uh, mention again that two of my primary sources here are um, Kaibyo, The Supernatural Cats of Japan by Zach Davison, and then also a book uh, titled The Japanese Myths, The Guide to Gods, Heroes, and Spirits by Joshua Friedman. Um, the first cat I want to touch on, I think I may have mentioned this one in passing, but is the, the, the cat is the Maneki Neko, the inviting cat. Uh, this is a cat that I think everyone, uh, a cat statue, if you will, that I think everyone has seen, uh, probably in person, probably in multitudes at times. Uh, and if you haven't seen one in person, surely you've seen an image of this. This is uh, a little statue of a cat gesturing with, it, with, its, uh, with a face down paw welcoming good luck into a space. A lot of times these are like solar and or battery powered as well. And so you get that little motion of the inviting paw. I don't think I knew what this was called, but I thought of this as the lucky cat. And it kind of has a, in in some forms, it has a paw that waves like the lever of an old, old school cash register. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's, its origins are in the Edo period, uh, when it was apparently observed that cats sometimes manipulate their paw in this way that resembles the Japanese traditional hand gesture to come inside. Mm. I think in 
Western traditions, it's often easy to look at that and think of like waving or like you say, pulling a lever. Uh, but uh, in Japanese tradition, I believe this would be more like, yeah, come inside. And the cat then is welcoming good luck generally inside a home or business. They are not, and I can't stress this enough, not welcoming in vampires. So if you are a vampire out there, do not misinterpret a luck cat as being an open invitation to come inside because it's it's not going to work. I can't believe this has never come up before. Does the uh, when a vampire has to be invited in, does that apply to places of business or only to homes? And if it applies to places of business, is the open sign welcome enough or does it have to come out of a person's mouth? I don't know. It depends on the interpretation. Yeah. If it's by appointment only, I think the vampire cannot come inside. Mm. All right. Now, as, as, as for the luck cats, though, uh, Davison shares uh, several more tidbits. Uh, I wasn't familiar with, with any of this. I'm going to stress, though, that there's no real canon here uh, regarding what any of these details mean. And some you'll apparently find traditions that, that, uh, that, that are the opposite of, uh, of some of the standards here. But in general, you look at one of these luck cats, you may see a red bib or collar. This is a symbol of Buddhist divinity. Oftentimes, you'll see it holding a coin, a gold coin. This is uh, from the uh, Edo period as well. It's got a koban. It represents like vast wealth. And I think there's also this idea, too, that is kind of like, um, as Davison points out, like pearls before swine. You know, mm. it's like a coin for a cat uh, is, is something that a cat cannot actually appreciate. Uh, but it's kind of fun that it has it. Um, the, the cat would rather have a wad of aluminum foil. Yeah, yeah. The colors mean a lot, apparently. Uh, you often see white ones. A white luck cat uh, typically means happiness. It's inviting in happiness. Red color, it's, uh, it's inviting in relationship success or, and or protection from illness. The black color is protection from evil spirits. Gold cats obviously mean money. Um, but then there are all sorts of newer colors that have apparently been introduced just in, in general popular culture, like blue for academic success, green for health, pink for love, and then calico apparently is considered the luckiest of all, I guess, because you get a combination of colors. Mm. And calicos have like luck associations like traditionally in Japan. Also, depending on which hand is doing the waving, uh, some traditions say left hand invites in money, right brings in customers, though sometimes apparently this is reversed. So it depends who you're, you're asking about it. Um, some say right is for home, left is for business. Left hand, it also apparently has a connotation with holding one's liquor, which apparently ties into the idea, particularly with a luck cat in a restaurant, uh, is of keeping clients drinking so that they're ordering more food. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, that nothing is. There's no strict canon or code here. You'll find various uh, interpretations of this. Um, again, origins go back to the Edo period. Uh, you would have these motionless clay models, and there are a number of stories that lay out how these clay statues came to be. Uh, there, are, there are some stories apparently in which you have a situation where a hero is saved from ill luck or attack by a beckoning cat in the night. And, uh, and therefore, after the fact, they're like, oh, well, this cat saved my life. I will, uh, I will now honor it. Um, there's one story that Davison relates in which there's a, like a samurai uh, protecting uh, this woman. They're going through the dark streets at night. This cat jumps out. Um, he thinks it's a threat. He slays the cat and then realizes, oh, this cat was protecting us or warning us. And then he feels vast guilt and a shrine is built to the cats. Mm. There's also a 
Cat Temple origin story of sorts. There's an actual Cat Temple in Japan. Um, Gotuku-ji, I believe, is, uh, is what it is called. Uh, so the cat is apparently, in some traditions, said to be one of only two animals that did not weep upon the death of the Buddha. I've seen it also put other ways that the like the cat does not accept the Buddha's teaching, etc. Uh, whatever the details, you know, it it matches up with the spirit of the cat. The cat does not seem likely to uh, to, to to be greatly emotionally disturbed by uh, the death of even the Buddha, and also <laughs> is going to be rather neutral on Buddhist teachings. The cat is like, I I will keep my attachments. Thank you very much. Yes, but the story goes that okay, cats are not really. Uh, lined up with the with with the the spirit of Buddhist teachings, therefore they're not a great animal to have at a holy site. But the story is that a monk kept one anyway because it was cute, adorable, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, so he hides it from the abbot there. But then one night during a storm, the cat invites a powerful lord to the temple for refuge, and that temple, Kotuku uh, Ji, becomes the cat temple, and uh, today hosts thousands of luck cats. You can find various pictures of this uh, this place online. And just, yeah, tons and tons of white luck cats. Wow. I'm looking at a picture you included in the outline, and it looks like uh, drifts of snow with strawberries. Yeah. Yeah, there are a bunch of them. Now, uh, again, we, we discussed that there's a lot of overlap with these different uh, stories about the cats, uh, supernatural cats of Japan. And the, this general idea that there's kind of an evolution. A cat becomes old enough, a cat becomes 100 years old, and then the tail splits. It becomes something else. More tails mean more power. Power even to change its shape and take on human form and manipulate aid or hunt humans for sport, that sort of thing. Oh, and when you said this, I just realized I forgot to mention when I did the recap at the beginning that, yes, the Nekomata has a forked tail or two tails. That's like a primary characteristic I left out. Apologies about that. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. 
And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Now, while a lot of these ideas with supernatural cats are, or they become the idea that this is something that a normal cat can and will turn into, uh, one exception to this is the idea of the Neko Musumi. This is the cat daughter. Uh, Zach uh, Davison discusses this in the book. Uh, The cat daughter in question here is a cat-human hybrid, uh, but her origin isn't situated in the domestic cat at all. She's not a former domestic cat that is transformed into this state. Uh, She's also attributed with certain acts that are feline in nature, like uh, cat bathing and killing of rodents in line with her feline qualities. Now, as Davidson lays out the origins of this one and the path of his evolution, kind of walk us through a couple of centuries of weird tales and oddities in Japanese culture. The earliest version of the tale stems from the uh, Misimomo or Seeing Things shows in the 1700s. These, he writes, were, quote, a combination of American freak shows, haunted houses, and the believe it or not style of ex- exhibitions still popular today. So, Amid, uh, so th- this would this would be uh, a situation where you'd encounter various yokai artifacts, including the original Fiji mermaid, which mm. originated here in this setting and then you know ended up traveling into the West. Uh, but this is where the original cat daughter is said to have existed. It's unknown, however, if this was somebody that had a birth defect, if it was somebody who had been made up with special makeup or lighting or if it's some with some combination of different elements but there was supposedly an individual that was the cat daughter and you would pay to see them are there even any physical descriptions other than that in some sense some vague sense she looks like a cat i don't think so uh, I, I think we don't have a lot to go on here mm. based on, based on my reading of davidson so the Missimomo shows, they die out. Maybe they're no longer popular. And, but the story here of the cat daughter comes back during the Edo period in the Kaiden or ghost story collections. Uh, sometimes she's called the licking girl, again, because she's half cat, half human, and she does things that a cat will do, like bathe herself by licking her fur and, of course, killing various rodents. That's also huge. But again, her origins in these cases are still mysterious. Nobody's saying that she was a domestic cat at one point. Uh, She's just this anomaly. And apparently accounts during the Edo period also sometimes present her, uh, again, as a historical fact. Um, uh, Davidson points out that there's like one particular work that's primarily a historical and political diary, and they just refer to the cat daughter as a fact, like this is a person that exists or existed, uh, which I guess makes sense if its origins are uh, in this uh, Missy Momo seeing things show. Hmm. But then things continue to evolve. And finally, in the 1930s, uh, the story takes on this form of a Buddhist morality lesson. So in this story, you have a father who makes his living producing cat skin shamisens. This is a stringed instrument um, that were uh, that was sometimes traditionally made with cat or dog skin. Um, and so in this story, the father has killed something like 500 cats in his trade to make these, these nice musical instruments that he sells. But this ends up cursing his bloodline, causing his daughter to be born as part cat. 
Uh, so this is some something kind of like a karmic punishment. Yeah, exactly. Now, I want to point out there are also illustrations of the Nicomata from the 1700s. Uh, we talked about the Nicomata in the last episode, which depicts this this uh, creature in sort of like a cat humanoid form playing a shamisen. And this was, a, I guess, apparently amusing because the shamisen might have been made out of cat skin. All right. The next one I want to discuss very briefly. I don't think I'm going to go into this one much, but if if you happen to be on any of our social media um, uh, profiles, you may have seen an image selected to promote this episode. And it consists of what appears to be just a giant chonker of a cat, um, maybe not even leaping, but just sort of reaching out of the of, of the high bushes and small trees to swat at uh, a, a human uh, or a pair of humans and cause them great agony and fear. Elephant-sized cat rising like steam out of the weeds. Yeah, and the cat I love has this very sort of neutral <laughs> look on its face. Like it, it doesn't look fearsome. And there are plenty of depictions of cats taking on, um, you know, sort of uh, evil and t- terrifying um, uh, uh, facial features. But this one, this cat looks very neutral as he as he sort of uh, you know emerges from the bushes. And, uh, yeah, it's, he's a total chonker. Very much reminds me of the cat meme of um, Olad, he coming. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this one. This is the, the highest level on the, the chonk spectrum for how chonky a cat may be. I'm not familiar, but I understand the concept. Okay. Uh, this picture uh, is uh, a 19th century image uh, from uh, Kawanabe uh, Kiyoshi. This is uh, supposed to be a giant uh, cat attacking uh, people in the forest. Now, this is supposed to be a depiction of the Iriomote Oyomaneko, or the uh, Iriomote Great Mountain Cat. Uh, so this is a remote island of Japan, um, and it is indeed home to a small Iriomote cat, a subspecies of leopard cat that is only found there. Uh, it's critically endangered. It is not giant, but there are legends of a much bigger cat with shining eyes that lives in the mountain. Uh, so I, you know, I guess you could say it's kind of a cryptid of Japan. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, who, who knows if there's, a, there's anything to this again, cats, when they're, uh, you know, they may have that appearance of glowing eyes in the dark. And you can imagine how just, uh, just sighting, uh, one of these normal, small wildcats, what could have led to this idea that there's something bigger lurking in the wilds. I was thinking about this after we recorded part one the other day, because, of course, the world is full of actual big cat predators, lions, tigers, leopards. Mm-hmm. You know, these are these are large predatory felines that uh, can can could really mess you up. But it seems that the idea of taking like even if you live in a place where there are no large predatory cats, you could almost like invent the idea yourself just by looking at a house cat and thinking, wow, if this were bigger and stronger, I'd really be in trouble. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's, that's obviously always a concern with cats. Uh, you know, there's always the joke about like if a cat were um, were larger than a human, you know, you would just eat you, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, I guess it's, it's, it's always, you, you never want to err just entirely on the side of, oh, well, there's a tradition in this culture of a giant animal. That giant animal certainly existed. Because obviously that's not always the case. I mean, because the human imagination is powerful enough to imagine large and small versions of any animals. There are no giant man-sized spiders in Japan, but there are still (laughs) stories about them. Exactly, yeah. 
and we make this point a lot on the show, sometimes uh, st- weird stories and myths and legends do go back to some kind of historical event that maybe is getting uh, altered through retelling, but it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to assume that every crazy story goes back to something that really happened. People just are creative. People make things up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really a disservice uh, at times to the to the human imagination and to um, and also to the traditions of, um, of various peoples to say like, oh, well, they clearly didn't think of this on their own. It must have been a cryptid. Or another version of this, of course, is the idea like, oh, well, look at this weird thing in, in their art. It has to be ancient aliens. Uh, like when you when you do that, there are a number of problems with the ancient yeah. aliens hypothesis, as we've touched on many times before. But a big one, too, is like you're you're doing a disservice to whatever traditional uh, society you're commenting on by saying that this thing that they that they Im- imagined interpreted that uh, you know has this important role in their belief system when you just say oh that's that's people from another planet that's not nothing they did this is nothing that is a part of them this is something external to them Right. And of course, that applies to like real human accomplishments, you know, buildings and structures saying like, oh, people couldn't have done that without without alien help. That is wrong, misguided, not an appropriate reaction to the evidence. And it is insulting to, you know, people who worked hard and were, were clever. But also it, it applies to stories, you know, stories mm-hmm. where say like, oh, you know, this being came out of the water and it had these physical features and all those things. There's no reason you have to assume that that's based on people actually encountering some being they didn't understand. People were creative in the past, just like they're creative now. People today make up stories about fantastical beings and beasts. They did then, too. Right. But then again, you know, we are creatures that live in the natural world, and we are often inspired by the natural world. And uh, and we kind of get back into that in the, the final example I want to highlight here. Uh, this may be one of my favorites. It is the idea of the kasha. Uh, this one's interesting because in its origin, it is not a cat at all, but a terrifying flaming cart with or without Oni attendance. So terrifying, you know, troll-like demon beings uh, attending it or sometimes not attending it. It comes down from the sky to drag away the souls of sinners who are living in the end times, drag them down to hell uh, and, and its many torments because the cycle of reincarnation has run its course. Oh, you no. know, there's uh, everything is broken. So it's time for the hell cart to come and just drag people away. Or at least that's how Kamakura Buddhists of the 12th through 14th centuries apparently viewed matters. But much later during the 1800s, you have influential yokai chronicler Toriyama Seikan coming around. We've talked about him before because a uh, very influential figure in sort of laying out what various yokai looked like and also just straight up making things up, just like very much like creating things on his own. I think we've touched on some of these before where when you, many yokai have, you know, very, you know, cultural origins within the larger culture and and in traditional folk beliefs and particularly in rural areas, but also in many in urban areas as well. Uh, But sometimes Seikan just sort of made something up because it was clever or, you know, it commented on uh, some social or political element of the time, that sort of thing. So he comes along and he reinterprets the Kasha as a cat creature covered in flames, a fearsome cat uh, creature. And Joe, I've included an image of the Kasha here as a yokai for you. That is brutal. The flames are coming off of it sideways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's these wonderful like Japanese flames that kind of feel like 
like tendrils or tentacles, you know, like they're, they're reaching out to grab you. Uh, there's also this kind of like spiral motif behind it. Like it has just come out of a, a warp uh, from the hell yeah. domains. Uh, so yeah, a fearsome creature come to get your soul. I guess the sideways flame suggests like a whipping wind or a storm or something. Yeah. So a very chaotic entity. Uh, and according to Davison, uh, this is purely a product of Seikan's creativity. Uh, but his work was, again, highly influential, so it stuck. Um, the Kasha was now a flesh-eating animal spirit. And especially for the wicked, the idea is that during your funeral procession, a, a great wind may blow everything over, knock over your casket, open up the casket, your body comes rolling out, and then in swoops the Kasha to consume your corpse. Wow. Now, eventually, those Nicomata stories we talked about in the first episode, they end up influencing this Kasha legend, making it a normal house cat that has been transformed due to its proximity to the human dead. Um, so allow a normal cat to access a dead human body, and they will transform into a Kasha and drag it away. Um, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, it may, may, its tail may split and all the other motifs that we've discussed. Uh, but something about being near the dead body or drinking blood of the dead or, you know, licking the body of the dead, you know, something of this nature will cause this transformation. Now, in the last episode, we, we, we mentioned that stories concerning the Bakuniko and the dead, um, how these were, were probably linked uh, on various levels to observations of post-mortem predation of human corpses by cats. Now, it's not just cats. Dogs and other pets have also been observed to do this, to have a little to eat off of a dead human body. Um, apparently, dogs wait a while and are a little more concerned about it uh, regards to cats. I think cats do it. <laughs> I, didn't find, I didn't look up any hard uh, data on this, but uh, uh, Davison alludes to this. Uh, but it, you know, at any rate, cats will get in there and have a little to eat off of the dead. One of the probably disturbing realities to humans coming on the scene is that I've read when this happens, they, uh, animals, including cats, often go for the, the face first. Yeah, and it, it's not personal. It's just nature. Um, you know, Cats are meteors. Uh, but this is a case where the Kasha legend seems to be linked to these observations as well. So you get this idea that, like, look, keep the cats away from the dead or they will interfere with them, which on one level is, yes, absolutely true. They, they, will, they will probably have a, have a little bite. They will investigate the meat. Um, and you can imagine how this takes on fantastic, uh, exaggerated proportions. The idea that the cat is not just going to eat of the dead, the cat may do something more directly that impacts the soul of the deceased. They may drag them to hell. They may take on the form of the deceased, or as pops up in stories concerning both the Kasha and the Nikomata, they may leap over the body. And in doing so, they kind of unleash invisible strings that then reanimate the dead. They raise the dead through invisible strings. Wow, I love that. Yeah, yeah. So here we have a very, uh, you know, necromantic view of the powers of the cat, you know. And, uh, and, it, and again, it's, it's fascinating because, yes, it is fantastic and it ties into all these other ideas in the given culture here. But also a lot of it is vested in just our experiences of living with cats, that cats do seem to have this 
this secrecy, this neutrality, and they do things at times that seem to imply some some darker agenda, some uh, some hidden system of rules and laws that govern their behavior. You know, either in this world or the next, uh, they're 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 constantly fascinating and constantly forcing us to to wonder, like, what are they up to? What are they on about? What's their whole deal? Well, Rob, I have greatly enjoyed this exploration of the various uh, magical cat morphs and altered cats of Japan. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. And next week we'll have a, an all-new exploration for the Halloween season. Um, I don't think we've entirely decided what it is yet, but it'll, it'll be awesome. Trust us. <laughs> now, on another note, I mentioned uh, social media earlier. Um, go check out our various social media presences if you haven't had a chance uh, because uh, they're all back up and running. You can find them all linked on StuffToBlowYourMind.com. We are STBYM Podcast on Instagram. If you use any of these things, go check them out. If you don't use any of these things, hey, don't go sign up for them because we said we were using them. Uh, <laughs> it's not worth it. <laughs> but if you're already there. If you're already there, it's a way to keep up with what we're uh, we're doing on the show. You may notice that we have some new host photos. You can see new photos of Joe and myself. Um, these were taken at the Museum of Illusions Atlanta, a delightful and educational attraction located in Atlantic Station here in Atlanta. Uh, this uh, facility features a whole host of visual illusions, including illusion rooms you can walk into and interact with. They also have cameras there, and also you can bring in your own devices, take your own selfies, and enjoy all sorts of strange um, illusions, mirror, uh, unreal reflections, that sort of thing. Uh, Joe, we had a really good time looking into various infinity mirrors. Uh, there was even an upside-down uh, room. You remember this one? Yes, uh, I really enjoyed the uh, the hatch that goes down forever. It, it gave me uh, evocations of the House of Leaves. Yeah, yeah, that was a really fun one. We tried to get some photo. We got a, a few photos there, uh, but it was really hard to capture that infinity feeling. But yeah, Museum of Illusions Atlanta, it's fun for all ages. You can learn more about it at moiatlanta.com. Oh, and while we're at it, hey, it's Halloween season. We have a new logo design for the Halloween season. You can get it on various merch if you go to our merch store. Go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com and click the store tab. Um, you can also find images of this on our various social media accounts. But it's the Stuff to Blow Your Mind logo, but with some various occult images added to it. And you can get that on, on any shirt color. Get one in time for Halloween. Yeah, get a sticker. Get a, a whatever else they make, yeah. If you want one, don't let us pressure you. Come on. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's there for fun. It's there for fun if you want it. How do you, what's the most non-coercive way to encourage people to buy? Go buy. But you don't have to, but go buy. We made something that we think is fun, um, but it's, it's totally optional. <laughs> it's not required. Um, in the meantime, hey, uh, if you want to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you know where to find us, anywhere you get your podcasts. On Tuesdays and Thursdays, we have a core episode. Um, on Mondays, we do Listener Mail. On Wednesdays, we usually do a short-form Artifact or Monster Fact episode. There will be a Monster Fact episode next week. And then on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to just talk about a weird film on Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 